I would like to base this evening's talk on the story of Hui Neng, which I will get to later. It could be subtitled, Do We Work It Out or Do We Let It Go? We live within the field of our bodies, our emotions, our minds. Each one of us as individuals carries with us our past histories and all of the variety of memories and impressions from the past, which, is, which has influenced and does influence how we see ourselves in this moment, how we see the present moment itself. We carry within ourselves, too, our own individual dreams and aspirations, the differing goals that we value as being important in our lives. Our experience of the world isn't duplicated in exactly the same way by anyone else. Our inner experience is not duplicated in exactly the same way within anyone else. All of this that comes together in the present moment is what makes us an individual, is what makes us unique as a human being. It is what we call our personal world, and from it comes our very personal way of seeing. All of us know, too, that within ourselves, we have our own unique tasks that we address in our lives. The resources that lie within ourselves, dormant at times, cannot be developed, cannot be nurtured by anyone but ourselves. The limitations we experience, the boundaries that we experience, cannot be explored either by anyone else but ourselves. The way that we experience pain and conflict is somewhat unique to our personal world. What we need to accept and integrate can only take place within the field, within the realm of our own understanding. In that way, this inner journey that we travel is also one that is unique, not duplicated in exactly the same way by another. What is required of us what we are called upon to let go of, what we are called upon to develop. This is the understanding that we all need to come to. It is the challenge of our own individual paths. And yet, despite the differences that distinguish one person's experience from another, at the same time, we also, no doubt, share some very fundamental aspirations and fundamental yearnings we all seek for in our lives and within ourselves a greater depth of peace and serenity and balance. We all seek for the end of conflict, for the end of confusion and fear. And we also know that we all share in the capacity to experience fear and pain. And when we come to this path, we ask ourselves, how do we bring about the realization of that which we value? How do we come to greater peace? How do we come to wisdom and compassion? And we also ask ourselves, what is it that prevents 
the connectedness we seek for? What is it that prevents the openness and the freedom that we seek for and value in our lives? And when we explore those questions of what seems to prevent the realization of freedom and the end of limitation, so often we do see that it is fear, often. It is our memories of pain. It is our fears of repeating pain that that is the source of so much clinging and so much holding that we experience in the present moment. We have all had different forms of experience. We have all had in our lives moments of real connectedness, moments of being loved, moments of peace and moments of serenity. And each time we experience those qualities and those connections, we value them and we appreciate their significance. And we have somewhere within ourselves a knowing and an understanding that it is possible for us to live in a way of peace and understanding. And yet despite our knowing of those possibilities and despite our valuing of the moments of peace and serenity we experience, we find often that our knowing and our trust in ourselves is overshadowed by memories of pain, are overshadowed by our fears of repeating pain. We see the way that the past is repeatedly carried into this moment. We see the ways that we use our personal histories to define ourselves in the present, We see the ways in which our conditioning from the past limits our openness and our capacity to see anew and to see freshly in each moment. And the conditioning and memories of pain from the past manifest clearly in this moment as a kind of scar, a scar within ourselves that needs healing, scars within ourselves that lead to an incomplete sense of vision or a limited sense of inner vision. Those scars are often based upon very real experiences of pain, that we have experienced what it feels like to be rejected, to be unloved. We have experienced what it means to feel disapproved of or undermined in some ways. And those experiences that take place in our lives they make a profound impact upon us. They make a profound impact upon our consciousness, our way of seeing, our way of relating, inwardly and outwardly. Those experiences create fear. Fear of repeating them, fear of the pain that those experiences can bring. Those experiences also more deeply bring about limited ways of seeing ourselves, in which we see ourselves at times as being inadequate or unacceptable or unlovable, in which we see ourselves or believe ourselves to be limited or to be incomplete. And the most lethal effect of the presence of that fear is that we tend to lose our sense of trust in ourselves. Trusting in our perceptions, trusting in our inner resources, 
trusting in our possibilities and potential. And this is the most damaging effect of fear. Damaging in that the effect of that fear leads us to build up walls around ourselves, barriers to protect ourselves with, barriers to protect ourselves from the possibility of pain, barriers which also contain us and limit the exploration of our possibilities that is available to us. Those barriers are often experienced as a kind of armoring, armoring that manifests in many different ways. We don't necessarily move through life terrified, but we might move through life with a certain distancing, with dullness. We might move through life with a tendency towards distractedness, towards consuming input to fill up our fear of nothingness. We may move through life simply preserving a certain disconnection, not only outwardly, but also inwardly. At some point, it does happen for all of us that our desire for freedom and our desire to hold on to our barriers clashes that those two desires actually clash, come into conflict with each other. We know on one level what we don't want. We know clearly we don't want pain, we don't want confusion, we don't want fear. We also know what we do want. Again, it's often clear to us that we want peace, we want the freedom from conflict. And yet we find ourselves in a curious position because there is a fear of letting go of all of that which is familiar to us. Even if the identities we inhabit may be not particularly comfortable ones, even if the identities we inhabit may be very painful and confusing ones, we know them and they are familiar to us. And there's a certain level of safety into holding on to all of these props that we accumulate in our lives. And yet we also know that there is pain in holding on to them, that there is an equal amount of pain in not letting go, that we sentence ourselves to an endless experience of limitation which is always painful simply through our holding on to limited or incomplete visions of who we are, no matter how familiar they may be. And it does become clear to us that it is necessary to let go of these belief systems, that it's necessary to let go of so many of our conclusions and our descriptions and our props if we are to understand what freedom is. And we understand, too, that that letting go is going to come about really through the willingness to meet our fears, to explore our pain, not to avoid them, not to distract ourselves from them. And there's a shift that takes place inwardly in that understanding. It's a shift of opening, understanding that if we are to open to freedom, we must also open to ourselves, to our understanding of ourselves. And that opening is made possible by acceptance, by compassion, by understanding. 
that point of really wishing to let go, that point of really wanting to understand a way of being that's not defined by limitation, is what brings us so often to spirituality, to the path of meditation. We come because we treasure wholeness, because we treasure peace and freedom. And this is a path that truly does treasure all of that with us. We come too because it seems that this path offers us the tools that empower us to bring about understanding. It offers us a vehicle, a way of traveling this inner journey where there is some guidance. And we come too because this path emphasizes a value that we all appreciate, the need to be conscious and the need to be awake in our lives. And as we enter this path, there is no doubt that we bring the totality of who we are with us, our past and our present and our thoughts about the future. We don't shed all of this as easily as we take off our shoes coming into the meditation room. Each time we sit on a meditation cushion, we meet in different ways the totality of the whole of our lives, our past and our present. We bring with us our definitions and our tendencies and our memories of pain and also of joy. And we bring with us a certain amount of trust in our capacity to be free, no matter how quietly that voice of trust seems to whisper to us at times. And yet as we come into this path, we often encounter what seems to be two very confusing views, two very seemingly contradictory approaches about how actually to travel this path how actually to be with ourselves and to understand our personal realities. And those two contradictory views are probably best illustrated by the story of Huineng. I got to it. (laughs) Some of you know the story of Huineng. It's the story of a Chinese uh, peasant who uh, lived with his mother there not being much upward mobility in the peasant classes in China at that time, he was entered into a monastery because there was some safety there. And being a peasant, you know, somewhat, uh, he didn't have a lot that he brought with him. He was kind of assigned to a very lowly position in the monastery, in the kitchen, cleaning the rice and doing the dishes and such like. And it happened that after he was there for a time, The patriarch, or the head of the monastery, was nearing the end of his life. He was very old, and he had to choose a successor who was going to be the next patriarch. And there were many, many members of the monastery who'd been there for a very long time. And he decided that the best way to choose a successor was to have something of a competition. And the competition was to be that those who thought they really understood the Dharma should write their understanding in the form of a poem upon the wall of the monastery. And so, you know, there was much discussion about who was going to enter this contest, mostly amongst the senior members. And there was one, you know, who'd really been there the longest, and he decided he was definitely going to try for this position. 
And so he went into the wall of the monastery and he wrote a verse upon the wall. And he wrote, The body is a Bodhi tree and the mind a mirror bright. And carefully we shine them hour by hour and let no dust alight. This was considered to be a very profound piece of wisdom and a deep understanding of the path. And all the, most of the other members kind of bowed out of the contest at that time, sure that the succession was already guaranteed, except for Wei Ning, who came to the wall of the monastery the next evening. And he wrote upon the wall another verse. And he wrote, There is no Bodhi tree, nor is there mirror bright, but Buddha nature shines clear and pure, so where can dust alight? Of course, he got it. (laughs) (laughs) But those two verses actually illustrate the very different approaches in this path. Different approaches that many of you have encountered through your work in therapy and also through your work in meditation. Do we work it out or do we let it go? We seem to have all of this that we're dealing with. Do we work on it or do we simply let it go? And even what do those two different approaches actually mean? The first view that there is uh, a Bodhi tree and a mirror bright and we carefully shine it hour by hour and watch out for what happens it illustrates a very personal relationship to this practice. It illustrates a way of being in this practice in which our focus is essentially to work on things, to bring about change, to bring about transformation through the application of our own effort and our own energy. And it illustrates a way of seeing ourselves in which we are seen almost as a kind of mirror or a kind of receptacle that constantly accumulates imperfections or impurities. And our job, of course, is to uh, cleanse the mirror, to clean the mirror, to keep getting rid of them, to keep working on them, to purify and to develop. And it emphasizes that there is indeed a path of development And we are clearly the ones who travel on it. We are the ones who do the work. The second verse, it states there is no Bodhi tree and there is no mirror and and there is simply Buddha nature. So where can dust possibly alight? It illustrates basically a very different approach. It emphasizes the emptiness of individuality. It emphasizes the emptiness of self, the insubstantiality of body and of mind. It's a much more absolute view, which points again and again simply to seeing the emptiness of self and all of its descriptions. And in that, of course, there is really nowhere to go. There's really nothing to attain. There's really nothing so much to do. Because Buddha nature is something that is ever-present, that is never realized and never attained. Very different approaches. In the first one, the path is traveled in a very conscious way. It's a path of developing and refining the difficulties and the problems that seem to arise. There's often a focusing on working with things and working on things. And we do that work 
by applying the methods and the techniques and the practices that we learn. And the very application of those techniques and practices is in order to reduce the difficulties that we experience. And in that development of the practice, understanding the development of wisdom is seen as a very progressive path that gradually we get deeper, we develop in wisdom, gradually we work things out, gradually we let go of things, and time is a very important factor, it seems, in that development, that we become clearer, we become more peaceful, we become more tranquil, we become hopefully wiser and more compassionate all in time. And there seems to be a development and a progression then of insight that allows for a deepening and definitely certain goals that are aspired to. It seems difficult to reconcile that approach with the second one, which says there's nothing really to work on because the problems that we experience and the difficulties we experience are somewhat unreal that they have only a relative existence, that those problems and difficulties exist only in their relationship to I, to belief in the I notion, and that there can't possibly be a path because to suggest a path does indeed suggest that there is a traveler. And if the I, the sense of self, is so empty, then who on earth is ever going to travel this path? And it says there's no improvement and no progression and no goals, no gradual progression to aspire to. Now these two approaches, I mean these two different views about this practice also lead to radically different kind of attitudes and approaches. If we see time as a factor, if we see gradual progression of insight as being the way that this path develops, then often we approach this path in a very intense way. Always doing something, very much involved in doing, very much intent on working out the difficulties which seem to prevent us reaching our goals. We talk about penetrating things and cutting through things and transcending things and transforming things and all the variety of things that we actually do in the meditation which keeps us very busy. It does, at times, the intensity with which this work is undertaken does make the path, at times, very heavy. Because if you notice, you know, people don't talk so much about working on their compassion or working on their loving-kindness or working on letting go of their equanimity. There tends to be, of course, a focusing on the negative, all that we experience as a problem. And so, of course, the path becomes heavy at times, at times it seems to be something of a path of misery because there is so much to do. You know, if there's not one thing, it's another. My goodness, it seems to be a bottomless pit of things that need something done with, some alteration or some change to take place. And in that kind of approach of, you know, the suffering mode, Um, Suffering is often equated with progress and the working with suffering is often also unfortunately approached as being something of a test, something of an exam, you know, that you pass 
as you're able to work on different areas of suffering. In that approach, too, where we are constantly focused on doing, there is no doubt that signposts become very, very important and significant. Signs of change. We measure ourselves by the changes that are happening or not happening. We have a certain spiritual identity that is dependent on how well we seem to work with things or how poorly we seem to work with things. And we measure then, or we tend to measure, our spiritual worth by signs of progress and signs of failure. And we tend to be on the lookout for them. We have two sittings in a row in which we feel peaceful. Terrific, we're getting somewhere. The next sitting, it all falls apart. Terrible, we've lost it. You know, we have a sitting without pain. We feel we're finally moving through it. The pain arises in the next sitting, and we feel that we've blown it somehow. There's this constant measuring that tends to be because our spiritual identity is identified with the results that we are, seem to be able to bring about. And you've probably seen that little dance happen to some extent in your meditation. In the second view, of course, a different attitude arises. You know, the notion of self is brought up. And it's kind of looked upon with a certain amount of disdain and contempt to attempt to work upon everything. You know, there's often this view adopted, well, it's a waste of time to be doing all this work. It's a kind of worthless activity to be doing, to be involved in all of this doing and trying to change and trying to work on things because, after all, it's all empty anyway. Now, this attitude is very attractive, of course. You know, we must understand it's very attractive, particularly if we're walking through life with a weight of defenses and a weight of kind of personality defects that are limiting us in our lives. It's very attractive to see it all as being simply empty. You know, and it's a great excuse. You know, you, you blow it in relationship to another person. You, you say something totally mindless. And you say, it's just ego. It's not me after all. You know, uh, you, know, you, know you, you find yourself, you know, accumulating all these attachments and limitations. It's just empty. It's not me. It's not mine. You've heard about anatta. You know, and it can be a very attractive approach. It can also be an excuse for a great deal of irresponsibility and often at times some insensitivity in our lives. And yet we must consider whether there is some validity in this view. Are we going to be forever working on things? This is an important question to ask ourselves. Is this a life sentence? Are we going to be forever working things out? Haven't we seen the tendency of self to accumulate new descriptions? Haven't we seen that we seem to work on something and we just kind of nicely tie it up or feel that we've nicely tied up our jealousy or our greed, you know? We've really managed to get on top of it. There's always something else. You know how quickly the mind then moves to the new agenda of what I'm going to work on. Now I've got my, my, you know, my feelings of inadequacy. And it's a whole project. And we can get very project-minded. 
you know, this retreats for this, save the next one for anger, you know. It can seem to be an endless activity and surely we see that it is a possibility of being endless. That the very nature of self, the very nature of I is to cling, is to grasp hold of things. There will always be a new label, always a new definition, always a new description. Sometimes they're nicer, sometimes they're easier to live with, and yet there is always within the field of those descriptions and the field of those definitions clinging and grasping every time we say, I am, no matter whether it's better or worse. And surely we see too that the problems seem to be many at times. And yet surely we begin to understand that there is this fundamental tendency to cling which manifests itself in so many different forms. And that this is the fundamental difficulty we're actually encountering. And that it is not necessarily so much that we have to work everything out, which is not a denial of the need to actually understand our inner dynamics. But it is questioning this attitude that is taken up that the path is dependent on how much I get rid of or how much I work out. Surely we see that the major insight, the fundamental insight, which is truly liberating, is really the understanding which liberates us from clinging, which liberates us from grasping and from identification. Now these two views, these two approaches, they seem very contradictory. You know, and at times it seems that we must take a stance. And often we find ourselves, indeed, identifying for a time with the line that seems to be most in accord with our own conditioning. You know, if we have a a big history of needing to work things out, for a time we will in meditation, indeed, be busy working things out. For a time, you know, if, if we feel that we don't want to deal with ourselves, we may very well find ourselves adopting a view of insubstantiality. And at some point, too, we realize that they are views and that there is such a thing as spiritual conditioning and that it's no less limiting than any other form of conditioning. And at some point, we understand the need actually to go a little bit beyond our views, to question our approaches, to question some of our fundamental belief systems. It's clear to us that when we are sit, we are sitting with our inner experience. And that it is important that this meeting is a meeting of real connection, meeting of real connectedness, that the closer we are actually connecting with our inner experience, the clearer does our own path become. No one can actually define that for us. But the closer that we actually connect with our inner experience, the clearer does our own path become We bring the totality of ourselves. It is not possible in the midst of pain, in the midst of great inner turmoil and conflict, to say to ourselves, well, just let go. You know, or this is just empty. You know, you try it. Nothing happens. (laughs) Nothing happens. It's like this little record that's playing round and around. You know, just let go, just let go. It could be a parrot talking to us for all the effect that it has. It doesn't mean anything. It becomes just a view. 
we experience scars, we experience a limited sense of vision. And it is necessary to see that there is a place for healing in this practice. And it does seem clear to me that in order to let go of self, to truly be able to let go of all deep notions of self, there first needs to be a healthy self to let go of. That if you are find yourself amidst much pain and much confusion, there is a distortion of our seeing of ourselves. We see ourselves in a very limited way. And cultivating a healthy sense of oneself in this practice is not about strengthening the ego. It's not about self-improvement. It's not about accumulating more flattering descriptions. But it's learning to cultivate this practice in which we can begin to approach ourselves in a way of seeing that is free from distortion, free from projection, and free from denial. And in that openness that develops, so many of the imbalances simply can be let go of. We cultivate spaciousness. We cultivate tranquility because those qualities are empowering. They enable us to experience ourselves in an entirely new way. They, enable, they bring about a sense of trust that it is possible for us to be grounded. We ha- a new vision, a clearer vision, a fresher vision emerges within ourselves that it is possible to be established in clarity. And it is on that basis of that emerging vision in the present that we are able to let go of the distortions from the past. It is on the basis of that clear vision of ourselves in the present that the past simply doesn't have the power anymore to distort. And in that, there is healing. It's not that we've worked out every aspect of our conditioning. It's not that we've attempted to erase our conditioning. It's not that we've attempted to improve our imperfections. Rather, we have simply cultivated through the practice the possibilities of a clearer vision, a fresh vision which is not marked by the past to emerge in this moment. And a trust, a sense of trust emerges with that in which the past and all of the marks of the past, so many of the limited descriptions of the past are let go of so organically without any effort, without any will, without any striving. They simply become meaningless in the light of the present. And it is not that we work from the past towards the present, rather but by being fully present and wholly present, the past simply ceases to have any power over us. We cultivate love and compassion in our practice and it eases the hold of any damaged sense of identity. And in that clarity and vision that emerges, we are able very freely and very consciously to question so many of the belief systems that we carry around. We are free to question so many of the descriptions and conclusions that we hold about ourselves and about the world. And we begin to see that it's not just detachment that brings transformation, that it is love and compassion 
that allows us to embrace the totality of ourselves in this moment without denial and without rejection, without striving for something that is separate from this moment. We bring some spaciousness and we find that the consciousness does expand. Our vision of ourself deepens and opens and also expands. And we are able, in that expansion, we are not deceived by the conclusions. We are not deceived anymore by the descriptions. And we can bring some inquiry into that spaciousness. If so many of these descriptions, we really see them as being empty. We really see them as being transparent. And we can question what actually is real. What actually is authentic. What actually is genuine within ourselves. That questioning is taken, undertaken without fear. And we see that letting go is very liberating. That letting go is an act of compassion for ourselves. That letting go is something that brings joy into our lives. And we see there's actually no contradiction between traveling this path with effort and focus and also trusting in that intrinsic suchness within ourselves and within the world around us. And perhaps there's a verse that the Buddha spoke that illustrates that lack of contradiction. And he said, mere suffering exists, but no sufferer need be found. And the deeds are, but the doer of the deeds is not there. The path is, but no traveler on it is seen. And freedom is, but not the person who enters it. And there is a way of traveling this path is not focused upon I. A way of traveling this path with inquiry, with openness, with sensitivity, cultivating all of the things that we need in terms of spaciousness and compassion and openness. And we see that so much suffering is reliant upon identifying with the sufferer It doesn't mean that there is not pain in our lives that is not taking place. There is grief, there is sadness, there is loss. There is all part of our lives. And yet there is a way of being with all of that in which we are not undermined or disempowered. We can act through with response rather than with reaction. And responding, we don't create a personal history. We don't create unfinished business that we then accumulate. In the fullness of our response, we can act clearly and consciously without limitation. We can travel this path without any notions of improving ourselves or getting better or getting rid of anything whatsoever. We can travel this path in the way in which we are totally present just one moment at a time and truly understand that all of time is held within this moment that the whole of our lives is held within this moment and the possibilities of transformation lies within this moment. And understanding freedom, freedom is never a personal possession. It's never a personal territory that we can own or gain or keep. That freedom is a way of seeing in which the suchness of all life is revealed a suchness which is not separate from the essence of our own being. 
Traveling this path with exploration, with sensitivity, and with openness, we come to understand how very organic, how very natural letting go can actually be. That not only do we let go of our definitions, that we let go of our fears. And in that letting go, there emerges a vision within ourselves of true wholeness, of true freedom. There emerges a way of being in the world in which we move within the spirit of freedom. There emerges a way of relating to all of life which is founded upon wisdom and compassion. And that vision is our own heritage. That vision is our own spiritual heritage. And this path is all about reclaiming that heritage. May all beings live with sensitivity. May all beings deepen in wisdom. May all beings live with compassion. This talk was given by Christina Feldman at Insight Meditation Society on July 27, 1989. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Arch. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.